Well, good day, friends. Good afternoon. Happy Tuesday. Happy New Year. Welcome to the program. Afternoons on 770 CHQ, our first show of 2023. Hopefully you had a, a safe and enjoyable New Year's Eve and a New Year's long weekend. Remains to be seen what 2023 has in store for us. But one change that has occurred and occurred as of January 1st was that Alberta's gas tax went back down, back down to zero. You might recall in April of last year, the Alberta government announced that they were going to remove the 13 cents per liter excise tax, given where oil prices were at. That basically, given oil prices, Alberta could afford to stop collecting gas taxes for a while and give consumers a break. That policy was linked, though, to those oil prices. And as those oil prices softened a bit, some of the tax came back on. Not all of it, but 4.5 cents a liter was restored in the fall. And that's what we've been paying since then. But as of January 1st, a couple of days ago, that four point cents a liter is gone. So we're back down to zero. Now, the thing is, what you're paying at the pump today is higher than what you were paying a couple of weeks ago. So it's a little confusing and maybe frustrating for consumers. Say, well, the tax came down, but yet the price went up. Now, keep in mind, I mean, the price is still 4.5 cents per liter lower than it otherwise would have been. So I think what you're seeing at the pump obviously doesn't tell the full story. And, and looking, as we've seen over the past year, we should expect and do expect fluctuations in prices. Prices go up and prices come down. It's worth noting that as of today, Alberta has the lowest average gasoline price in the country at 127.3 cents per liter. That is lower by far than any other jurisdiction. The closest is Saskatchewan, 144.8. So some big savings still in Alberta. But what has driven the price up a little bit recently? You know, what's been going on with gasoline prices, the uh, nasty winter weather we've been experiencing, not just here at home, but across Canada and North America? What impact has that had on supply? What impact has that had on demand? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Vijay uh, Muralit Haran, who is a fuel market expert and director with R-Cube Economic Consulting, keeps a close eye on all of this stuff. Vijay, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. Uh, so let's start, first of all, with the uh, the gasoline tax. Uh, it, it, in your view, does it appear as though, at least initially, that that, that is being passed on? Uh, so uh, before we go into the nitty-gritty, uh, if everything else is constant, a change in gasoline tax would impact the pricing, but everything else is not constant. Yeah. But the reality is different. So uh, just to explain to the viewers, uh, there are four major components that dictate a gasoline pricing. It's the crude pricing and refinery margins, the price of the refineries charge the wholesalers, the wholesale retail margin, and the taxes. So mm -hmm. the last component was taxes that changed as of Jan 1st. Now, the key thing is you summarize all of these taxes put together forms of gasoline price at the retail level. What has happened? Crude prices have come down from historical highs from earlier this year. Uh, retail and marketing margin in Alberta has been like at one of the lowest levels in the last few days. Uh, taxes have gone down, but the biggest dominant factor has been refinery margins. So if you compare it to 19th of December or 18th of December to today's pricing, that's moved by 15 cents a liter. Yeah. So that's a pretty hefty positive change. So why does this happen? Uh, as we all know, we had a strong winter in the last few weeks. Uh, it impacted a lot of refineries all the way to the Gulf Coast. So they have frozen parts at Gulf Coast. So about ha more than half a dozen refineries, massive refineries, 
cut out the production. Basically, didn't produce any gasoline or diesel. By de facto, supply was disrupted in the U.S. When supply gets disrupted, we have a price response because there's less gasoline produced, demand's constant. By de facto, prices have to go up at the refinery level. So what we are seeing today in Alberta, in Canada, is that influential factor is is coming to roost in Canada's uh, uh, pricing part. Why is that? Alberta, Quebec produces more gasoline diesel than they consume. But where does the marginal battle clear? As a producer of gasoline and diesel, I, I have an adoption. I produce and sell in Alberta or the rest of Canada or the U.S. Right. The pricing point that pays me the best prices wins the product. In this case, Chicago. That's where the last, last battle of Alberta petroleum products clear. In a sense, our pricing is tied to PAT2 pricing in the U.S. Therefore, what happens in the U.S., we feel the pain. In this case, high refinery margins. Right, and it's interesting. I believe it's it's about a 12-cent jump we've seen in refinery margins. That, that seems to coincide pretty closely to what we've seen in terms of price increases at the pump. That is correct. And net-net, you save in some, you lose in some. The, the loss supersedes the save. We are paying high prices, absolutely. Right. So what are we expecting in the weeks ahead here? I mean, as you know, as that weather started to ease, are we starting to see uh, supply pick back up again, or is it still going to be a while to that sorts itself out? That's a great question. So uh, we have heard uh, news from the U.S. that some of these big refineries, for example, Motiva Port Arthur, one of the biggest refineries, they take a lot of Canadian battles as well. They restarted their units. So remember that it's not like they start from zero to 100 with the light switch. Yeah. They, they, they increase the production in a very, very moderate level and then reach peak points. So therefore, you're going to see at least a couple of weeks before the refineries come into full operation. It may extend to another week because some refineries might take this opportunity to say, let's do a maintenance to make sure that we get ready for the driving season. So you might have an extension point. But again, you will see some sort of relief in pricing from the refining point of view in the coming weeks. Well, it's encouraging. And I mean, I would say anecdotally, you know, judging from what I was seeing late last week to what I saw the last couple of days, uh, that even though prices did go up uh, for the reasons you outlined, it did seem as though prices came down more or less in line with that 4.5 cents a liter tax just over the last couple of days. Are you seeing and hearing the same sort of thing? I am seeing in the data. So I, I just look at the data because data doesn't lie. So the, the tax part has come down. Uh, the retail and marketing gross margins have not increased, which means that the tax has been flown through the cu- to the customers. So you have uh, it, it, you have the benefit to the customer with the uh, tax decrease. Unfortunately for us, the refinery margins have gone up pretty significantly, which is kind of counterproductive in our case. So. Well, and I mentioned, you know, some of the data from the Canadian Automobile Association. I mean, we're seeing price increases or prices go up right across the country. Uh, the average price per liter is still by far lower in Alberta than it is anywhere else. I mean, is that just a tax advantage? What what else speaks uh, to, to to Alberta's situation? Absolutely. Edmonton has the lowest pricing point in the country if everything else is constant, meaning that everything, refinery is working 100%, there's no disruptions. If everything goes normal... Edmonton and Alberta have the lowest pricing point. The highest pricing point would be Vancouver or Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. Vancouver, on average, citizens in Vancouver, on average, pay about 9 to 10 cents a litre more taxes than average Canadian. For example, at about 140 cents a litre, an average Canadian pays about 50 cents a litre in taxes, 49 to 50 cents a litre. 
An average resident in Vancouver would pay about 59 cents a liter. An average resident in Alberta would pay less than 40 cents a liter. So that's the Alberta advantage. Very interesting. Well, we'll see what uh, comes our way in the next couple of weeks here. Always do appreciate the insight, though, Vijay. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Absolutely. Have a great day. You as well. All the best. There you go. That's Vijay uh, Muralit Haran, who's a fuel market analyst, director with R-Cube Economic Consulting. So keeps a close eye on what's happening with gasoline markets. And that's basically the story here is what we've seen uh, with refinery margins. And those have jumped up by about 12 cents a liter. Uh, in in the last couple of weeks, and we're seeing that reflected in the pump. So prices did jump last week, and you probably noticed that ahead of the tax increase, or rather the tax decrease. So you had a price increase followed by a a tax decrease. I've seen, at least from what I've observed, and and Vijay says the data is showing the same thing, a, a bit of a drop over the last couple of days as that tax has come off. But if you wanted to understand what's happened in the last couple of weeks, uh, there's the explanation terms of what's happening uh, with refineries across North America, the trickle-down that has uh, trickle-down effect that has throughout the market. So something to watch over the next couple of weeks and some optimism that that situation is going to sort itself up. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride, not just over the last couple of weeks, but over the last 12 months, uh, as we've seen gasoline prices kind of jump all over the place. But they've been quite low as of late. And even with the increase last week, they're still quite low compared to where they've been at in recent months. I got a text here this afternoon. It says in Clairsville, Alberta, 6 a.m. this morning, a dollar eleven per liter. Used my airlines and AMA card, knocked it down to one oh nine. So there you go. There's still some some savings out there. Um, so you know, keep your eye out. There's you know, Gas Buddy websites like that if you want to kind of shop around to see what's there. I think oftentimes what ends up happening is you know you stop when you need to. You stop wherever's closest, or maybe you've got your loyalty cards and you know you go to your way to go to certain places. And maybe just look for the best price. Uh, so you can still find some variation up there in terms of prices. But overall, you've seen a bit of an increase. That's why still Alberta with the lowest average price per liter, the average across Alberta. And obviously that means that prices, some are higher, some are lower. But the average in Alberta, 127.3 a liter. Uh, compared to, as mentioned, the next closest Saskatchewan, 144.8. Uh, Manitoba, 147.6. Ontario, 146 even. Uh, The uh, average price in B.C. is 163. Uh, So almost a 40-cent difference between Alberta and British Columbia. Well, hey, folks, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Tuesday afternoon, our first show of 2023. And hopefully you had a safe and enjoyable New Year's Eve and New Year's long weekend. A little more time for your phone calls in this hour, a few other things to get to. I want to talk uh, off the top in this hour, though, about Canada's laws around self-defense. A situation in Halifax, once again, thrusting that issue back to the forefront. A home invasion in Halifax a few days ago that left one intruder dead. Uh, dead from uh, apparent stab wounds, 26-year-old man. Uh, police announced yesterday that no charges are being considered. They say uh, the man who died was one of two individuals attempting to invade the house. So they don't believe that the homeowner did anything wrong here. But does that mean the law is clear in terms of what individuals are legally permitted to do when it comes to defending themselves, defending their family, defending their home. And we've had some high-profile cases over the last decade. We did have about, I think about 10 years ago, uh, some changes to the law 
that were brought in by the then Harper government, partially in response to some of those high-profile cases. But does that mean we have clarity? Does that mean that this is being approached the same way, whether it's police in Halifax or police in Vancouver or police anywhere in between? Our next guest has been involved in uh, some of these uh, cases. Edward Burley was an Ontario lawyer specializing in firearms law and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Edward, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for for asking me on. Actually, my practice now and for the last decade has been Canada-wide. So I've dealt with cases in all the provinces and even before that as far north as Inuvik on on the matter of self-defense. Well, and as I mentioned, you've been involved in some of these cases. I believe it was Ian Thompson in Port Colburn, Ontario, about a decade ago. That was a pretty important case, and, and I believe you were involved in that. So you, you've seen a lot of this uh, up up close, haven't you? Oh, very much so. And that's that's why when I when I when I saw what the you know the position of what what occurred uh, down in Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. I I think that the, the law was applied correctly because. This was a man-to-man fight. Um, you know, knives were involved. What I've heard is that the perpetrators who invaded the house uh, had weapons. I think they had knives. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, th- and, and this was close contact that went on. We don't know whose knife stabbed whom. We don't know if the homeowner was injured or not. We have a lot of things we don't know, but it was close contact that occurred. And so the use of force was found by the police to be reasonable in the circumstance. Which would be the right, the right conclusion in your view. That's, that's correct. But you see, part of the, what I look at in a, in a larger sense is, you know, we can talk about the criminal code. It's section 34. <clears throat> subsection 2, and then further subsections, A through H. Well, when you're in this situation, are you going down a tick list of A through H? You're not. Right. You're reacting in the moment. And so the law can be nice and academic and say, well, we have a tick list here. We have to go down. How do you react to each of these things? But the person who is defending themselves in their home or wherever they are isn't trained to go through this tick list. They don't have the time to go through this tick list. They just react to try to stay alive. Right. And I think it's that simple. Because they they have to assess the situation as it's happening and and make decisions that could potentially be life or death, but obviously not wanting to to end up on the wrong side of any kind of a fatal encounter. Uh, the law does specify, you know, the idea of reasonable apprehension of death or you know reasonable grounds about how you assess the situation. It's tricky to apply that, isn't it? Well, they say it's that reasonable in the circumstances, and right. these are. Some it says, and and A through H are some of the things to be looked at, but not all of them. But, but you see, then there's other things that come into factor, like the police. They're trained to look at what's called the wheel of force. So if somebody starts becoming aggressive to the police, they yell at them. If that doesn't work, then 
then they keep, you know, then they can apply force by hands. If that doesn't work, then by baton. If that doesn't work, then by taser. And if that doesn't work, by gun. And and each one of those is an acceleration uh, of the type of force that the police use. But it's they're trained to do that. We're not trained. We are just amateur civilians who are our own first responders. And, and, and we have to look at it in the circumstances. There, people are going to overreact. Some people are going to underreact. Some people are going to try to run. Some people are going to say, well, I got you down now. I'm going to really, you know, really finish you off so that you can't do it again. Because, see, everybody reacts differently in one of these situations. And we don't know how we're going to react until we're into the situation. And then yeah. the police have to come by later and the Crown has to come by later and say, well, is that reasonable? Right. That's why I say it becomes emotional because it, it, it just does. There, there are police who say, well, you shouldn't have done that. There's other Crowns who say you could, shouldn't have done that, that they would have a different position on it. How is it different, do you think, when, when firearms come into the equation? The situation in Halifax, the individual used knives, basically, or a knife to defend himself. Do you think it would be different if he had used a firearm? Does that create a different kind of perception when it comes to police or the Crown? Oh, yeah. You might as well, you're, you're lighting the, uh, the, the rocket boosters at that point. Yeah. Because, you see, see, with a knife or a baton, or a shoe. I've had people defend themselves with shoes. Uh, you're you're within arm's length. It's very close. You know, words are said, expressions are seen, more actions are done. But with a gun, there may be a distance. There could be five feet. There could be twenty-five feet, and and that those are all the differences. On, on how things are assessed, you see? Because one of the other things, that, a, a landmark issue was in, C, in Bill C-68, December 1st, 1998, Canada eliminated the use of a firearm in self-defense as a reason to acquire a firearm. That was wiped out, taken off the books. Before that, you know, I, I would I would see, I have archives of this, permits to buy a handgun. And the purpose clearly and allowed by the police was for self-protection. Just of an, an ordinary individual, you or I. That we, you know, they, the, the law would acknowledge that we could buy a handgun. This was the criminal law back then, too, because that regulated it. Say, oh, yeah, Ed can buy one, can buy the Smith & Wesson for personal protection. That that disappeared. And now it's been eroded more and more. So do we need some more clarity in the law, or is this ultimately going to come down to how police and how prosecutors choose to, to handle these cases? We need more clarity in the law because even now, uh, it's it's being meted out by 
perceptions of individuals and and they're not always agreeable in other words what one one prosecutor may think of it different than another one police officer will think of it different than another i have situations whereby you know the cops that show up as the first first responders they'll come into a situation and say oh everything's fine but then the sergeant shows up and says oh no we're laying charges now and and, and and that's just one demonstration of it. Or, or as I said before, I said the other day, that a prosecutor will say, oh, well, this, this act of self-defense really was an act of vengeance. Well, that, that doesn't make sense. You're in the moment. There is no vengeance in the moment. There's only self-preservation in the moment. Right. Vengeance is when you've been wronged or you think you've been wronged, you think about it, you plot how you're going to get retribution, and then you meet that out. That's called vengeance. Vengeance is not in the moment. Yeah. But I get this rhetoric, not just rhetoric, true action based on those types of statements from Crown attorneys, from police. And that shows that even with the law having changed and trying to be specific, that the emotions of the police, the emotions of the Crown Attorney override it. Ed, just what we have you on the line, too, and I know you're watching very closely what's happening with Bill C-21 and a, a potentially huge change to Canada's gun laws, maybe potentially, you know, the biggest firearms ban we've ever seen enacted. What's your sense of where this is all going? What, what are you watching for in the weeks ahead here? Well, with the way C-21 has changed it's it's made the list of banned guns go from about two hundred thousand to two million mm-hmm. and 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 the wheels have come off how they're going to collect these and pay for them if they're even going to pay for them but people are missing another point and that is that when you look at the other provisions that are not being debated in the news there's going to be hundreds of thousands of gun owners who will have, at the snap of a finger, their gun licenses removed, revoked forever. And 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 so what we're seeing is C21 has three tiers of attack on the on the licensed gun owner. One is licensing itself. Number two is a handgun freeze, and number three is the actual confiscation of about 2 million guns. This is a huge, huge bill. And it goes back, it rewrites the law. It rewrites judges' decisions of 20 years ago where they said, oh, Harry can have his gun. He got into a bit of a dust-up. We're giving him a peace bond, but we don't have to take his guns. Well, C-21 says if you had a peace bond at any time in the, in the past, we're taking your gun license down, and you're going to lose your guns. Wow. So it, it has tremendous impact. Indeed it does. Well, we'll see where that all goes from here. we got to leave it there for now, though. Uh, Edward Burley, appreciate the insight as always. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Call me anytime.
We shall. All the best, sir. Thanks again. Edward Burley, who has mentioned a lawyer specializing in firearms law, has been involved in some of these high-profile self-defense cases. So his thoughts on where things are going on C-21, but also what he sees as a need to clarify the laws around self-defense. Section 34 of the criminal code is what deals with all of this. Now, some changes were made, as mentioned, by the Harper government about a decade ago. Anyway, so if you look up Section 34 of the criminal code, you can read it all there for yourself. But still, it doesn't address every single situation. And there's inherently some, you know, some subjectivity to all of this and what police and, and the Crown decide as, as relevant factors. So this uh, stabbing death in Halifax, as we mentioned in the outset, has been deemed to be an act of self-defense. Charges will not be laid. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Reganridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. Our number 403-974-8255. Coming up after 1.30, a look at uh, the state of education in this country. Dr. Paul Bennett is author of The State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools. Conversation with him coming up uh, after 1.30. There's been a lot of pessimism uh, recently about the state of democracy. And, and I suppose if you look at individual situations, you can make a credible argument. But our next guest makes the case that optimism should prevail, that it's uh, the autocrats who are, are facing the challenges and that maybe there's actually a moment here for democracy to emerge stronger. Op-ed piece uh, the other day in the Globe and Mail, democracy is not on the brink. In fact, 2022 might turn out to have been the twilight of autocracy. One can help. But joining us uh, to talk more about the case for optimism, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, the author of this piece, Ira Wells, uh, teaches in the Vic One program at the University of Toronto and is mentioning you can find this op-ed piece up at uh, theglobeandmail.com. Ira, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. As some of this is, is, I suppose, subjective, but as mentioned, and we can look at individual situations and, you know, where the countries are sliding, whether we're seeing improvements. Uh, there are different think tanks that monitor, you know, the state of democracy. What, what, in your view, what's the best way of assessing this? Well, I think it's a mixture of things. Um, the way that it's an interesting question, the way that it has been measured um, historically, it's fallen to an organization called Freedom House, mm-hmm. which uh, has monitored the the global state of democracy for uh, for decades. And um, this organization, Freedom House, is uh, uh, well respected. And they uh, every year they issue their their findings. And for the last sixteen years or more, they have continually found that democracy has shrunk around the globe. And, I, and how they do this is they look at um, they look at how many countries are uh, actual uh, d- democracies in their definition, and they taught them up and they count them, and um, and that number appears to be going down over time. Now there are we don't need to get too far into the the weeds here, but um, some some political scientists have argued that Freedom House actually overestimated the number of democracies, stable democracies, in the 90s and early 2000s. So that, in other words, there are d- democracies that are no longer democracies that were never really democracies in the first place. So um, there are it's it's complicated as to why there appears to be this global backsliding. But my point was just that when you look at what was actually happening in 2022, um, democracies did just fine. It was the it was the autocracies. It was China. Iran and Russia that really suffered in 2022, um, and that was the, the the story that stood out to me. 
Right. So, and obviously, some autocracies do matter more than others. And certainly, 2022 was a year dominated in many respects by the actions of China's government, the actions of Russia's government. 2022, I think, were objectively bad years for both of those regimes. So, what, what does that tell us then about the state of autocracy? Well, I think it tells us that it's wrong for us to assume that autocracies uh, are any more stable or are some sort of default. Um, in other words, we we have this narrative that democracies are so imperiled, that democracies are, you know, really suffering, and that we're somehow uniquely fragile. And that's that's not correct. Autocracies are also uh, very fragile organisms, and it's not just the big the big three that I mentioned: Iran, um, China, and Russia. Uh, and we can get into more specific facets of those if you want. But um, but it's it's also true that uh, autocracies have been falling uh, over the last number of years that you, you might not even be aware of them. There's been a, um, autocratic regimes that have been falling uh, in Iraq in 2019, in Algeria, in Malaysia, Tunisia, Kyrgyzstan. Um, the list goes on. And one of the reasons why we don't necessarily even notice, I think there's a certain amount of perception bias that occurs where, you know, a regime falls in Tunisia, an autocratic regime or, or in Iraq, and people don't even notice. They just, you know, autocracies fall and, and that's what they do. Well, you also make the argument in your piece that even in, in democracies, established or fledgling democracies, those who may be represent to some extent a threat to democracy uh, that, that, you know, even even they had uh, setbacks in 2022. So even where there is concern about the stability of existing democracies, you make the argument that, you know, 2022 showed us that, that maybe they're, they're more resilient than we think. Yeah, 2022 was a pretty good year um, for democracies. I mean, the, the case in point um, is is the United States is the central the central case in point where you had this showdown right in the U.S. midterms. Um, and the big clear dividing line was between the election deniers, those who said that uh, you know the, who believed the Trump's big lie in the case of election fraud in the U.S. Um, and across the board, those uh, election denying candidates um, underperformed. Mm-hmm. Um, the big examples were Dr. Oz, uh, Herschel Walker, Carrie Lake, uh, running for the governor of Arizona. Um, there were 13 candidates across the U.S. who were denying the results of the 2020 election who were running for secretary of state. Of those 13, only three won. So Americans seem to be largely fed up with this election-denying conspiracy theory, and they, and they punished candidates who represent that view in their most recent midterm elections. Yeah, we see it elsewhere. I mean, you mentioned you know, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, Le Pen in, in France. So we see other examples of that, too, which, which sort of speaks to the same sort of trend. Um, coming back, though, to, you know, the big three, as mentioned, China, Iran and and Russia. I think the protests we saw in China recently were, were kind of shocking. I mean, I think we assume that, you know, as far as autocracies go, maybe that was the, the most the most stable, I suppose, or, or the most secure. Um, you know, we saw remarkable scenes in Iran Putin, it feels like, you know, the ground is, is shifting beneath his feet. But it's hard to make predictions, isn't there? It's hard to assume that 2023 is going to be more of the same. I would want to make predictions. Um, and that it, that is certainly uh, it's certainly true that it's it's risky business to get into the sort of prognostication. But if you think about where we were a year ago, 
right? Russia was poised to make this lightning quick victory yeah. over Ukraine. Um, China felt invulnerable uh, to what to whatever degree people were thinking about Iran. Um, it was in the context of a of the failed nuclear negotiations. Um, and here we are today. You know, Russia has suffered this massive reputational loss. Um, many of the the cities, major cities that they captured early in the war, like Kherson, have now fallen back into Ukrainian hands. It really does feel as though um, that war may tip for Ukraine in the year ahead. Um, again, don't necessarily want to speculate about what happens next, but um, Russia looks weaker today than it did a year ago. I think there's just no denying that. Mm-hmm. Um, China, uh, similarly, I think people thought that it would have been ridiculous, outrageous to expect that Chinese people would have been out in the streets protesting the Communist Party uh, in the way that they did, and quite audaciously in, in 30 cities or near, nearly 30 cities. Um, and in Iran, people, uh, observers are now starting to suggest that it may be a matter of when that regime falls, not if it will fall, that it's, uh, there, there's a severe economic recession happening in Iran right now. Um, and the regime nearly fell in 2009 with something called the um, the Green Movement, and um, and some suspect that this the its time may have come. Well, it's interesting because I, I think there are preferred outcomes here. Um, you know, I mean, expressing support for Ukraine is is I think a much more obvious sort of response for for a country like Canada because we're not necessarily you know interfering in domestic affairs. The, the protest in Iran, I know we've we've had some targeted sanctions at Iranian leadership. The protest in China have been a little more delicate. I think we we've, we've largely kind of steered clear of that. It does present some some challenges on that side, doesn't it? When when we sort of prefer that things go in the same direction, but you, you don't want to make things worse with the wrong kind of intervention or maybe there's not even a role for us in in certain situations. Well, exactly. And that's um you know, I think that that is something that liberal democracies have learned the hard way, mm-hmm. and that if we want to support democracies, um, it's not about forcing regime change militarily. That that really led to a, a spiral that took us 20 years to uh, to get out of, um, uh, and and Canada wisely avoided going that route in Iraq, although we were very much on the front lines of Afghanistan. But um, no, you're absolutely right. And but there are more creative ways that uh, that that we can. Uh, help things uh, move in the direction of liberty, including providing stable or attempting to provide stable VPN access so that people can continue in in contested regions can continue to get access to the Internet. Um, And we can also push for uh, to have observers on the ground in conflict areas so that we can actually have a sense of what the truth is um, and and ensure that there are some some NGOs and some folks on the ground to be witnesses in in these areas. We'll leave it there. Very interesting. As mentioned, uh, folks can find this piece. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. Professor Wells, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. All the best. Likewise. Uh, that's Ira Wells, uh, teaches in the uh, Vic One program at the University of Toronto, also Academic Programs Director at uh, Victoria College at the University of Toronto. So you can find Professor Wells, his piece is mentioned in the Globe and Mail, uh, suggesting maybe 2022 could turn out to have been the uh, twilight of autocracy. A very bad year for autocrats in a number of respects, and frankly, that's that's good to see. Our number here, 403-974-8255-974-TALK. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back. Afternoon, Sun 770 CHQ. Rob Brickenridge with you. A lot more to get to here this afternoon. As mentioned, we'll get back to some of your phone calls and texts, 403-974-8255. 
want to talk about the state of uh, our education system. And, and obviously, the past couple of years uh, of pandemic disruptions has had a huge impact on uh, the education system and on the learning um, you know, that, that we provide to, to children that basically we're responsible for, right, through our publicly funded education system. So that's posed a, a number of challenges, obviously, but there's more going on than just that, right? I mean, this is kind of the, the social media, the technology generation. That's having a big impact on schools as well. So how do we navigate all of this? And how much has all of this been detrimental to our education system? I guess the bigger question, how do we overcome some of these hurdles. Well, it's certainly something our next guest has uh, written a lot about. Had an interesting uh, op-ed the other day in the National Post uh, looking specifically at, uh, you know, the, the technology and social media side of all of this. He's also author of the book, The State of the System, a reality check on Canada's schools. Uh, Dr. Paul Bennett is the director of the Schoolhouse Institute and adjunct professor of education at St. Mary's University and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Bennett, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you, Rob. When we look back at, at the impact of the pandemic, first of all, and, and the disruption to, to learning, the school closures that, that we dealt with, just the disruption of all the illness even we're seeing this year still with schools open, how big of a, a factor has all of that been in your view? We have the compound effect of um, the pandemic and um, the after effects of a social media um, impact, which is uh, I've called uh, TikTok brain, yeah. which is... Uh, essentially a new clinical condition where this generation of kids are essentially hooked on uh, social media to an alarming degree. And the impact is far-reaching and it is disrupting teaching, learning. It's uh, in the article I mentioned that um, kids are so hooked on their cell phones and they're exhibiting all the signs of a new clinical condition called TikTok brain and they're essentially driving both parents and teachers crazy. Well, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, I can vouch for that as, as the parent of teenagers. But when we talk about the impact of this or what you refer to as TikTok brain, what, what is that impact? What is this doing uh, to our young people? Well, there are now uh, neuroscientists who've come to our rescue to provide a bit more analysis and uh, evidence-based research. As we look at TikTok, it's a perfect example of the dopamine rush of endless short videos which um, makes it hard for young viewers to switch their focus to slower-moving, teacher-guarded activities. Um, The Wall Street Journal um, feature on TikTok Brain pointed out that we've made kids live in a candy store, and um, we have exposed them to every type of candy without providing enough guidance. Teachers and parents have been trying, but um, as the article points out, it's kind of a losing battle We don't really have a chance when we're up against uh, technology and we don't have policies in place to guide it, to control it, and to manage our way into the future. So is this affecting attention span? Is this affecting the way kids think, like how how brains work? Like what what are you seeing? What is the manifestation of that? I've gone at it from three different levels, Rob. First of all, we've talked about the clinical changes in the brain of teens and youth and the extent to which they've changed. Secondly, we have, to begin with, before the pandemic, we had noisy and disrupted classrooms. In 2018, um, the PISA test um, had a a um, sub-survey which indicated that uh, our classes were very disruptive and noisy compared to those in other countries. 
A third level of this is that we've come to believe that multitasking is possible, but new research indicates that there are limits to that, and it's, it's essentially a myth. And we've also got evidence now of shrinking attention spans across time. Uh, another thing that's quite obvious is, uh, you know, how we talk about long COVID mm-hmm. as the, um, the, uh, the virus and the changes that have affected our, our health. Well, now we've got a, another dimension to this, which is the long-term impact of uh, uh, cell phone and uh, mobile device addiction. And uh, I've got lots of evidence that I've gathered through research over the last six months of just how extensive uh, social media use is now among um, those who are up to a, up to age 12, and then particularly in those teen years in the high school uh, levels. Would you like yeah. me to illustrate? Well, yeah, please do. Expand on that. Well, over the uh, period of the pandemic, we uh, now know from common sense research, and um, the leading researcher is uh, Jean M. Twenge in the United States, and. From 2006 on, she tracked the impact of social media on the attitudes and behavior of teens in particular. But if, you, if I told you that teens today uh, in the age 13 to 18 spend 8.5 hours a day in their screens, I'm sure that wouldn't surprise you. But keep in mind, they're only in school for half that amount of time. And even if you look at kids up to age 12, Tangi's research shows that they now are up to almost six hours a day uh, online and connected to um, their devices. And um, I think this is dramatic changes. You know, there were in two years of the pandemic, um, the uh, growth rate was the equivalent to the previous four or five years. So what's happened is um, closing schools, putting everyone essentially online, has actually worsened the problem that we were confronting to the to begin with. So what do we do? I mean, it, it's it's got to be more than just no cell phones in the classroom. And I, I know it's tough to put all of that on teachers. And, you know, so maybe that, that is a starting point, but I would assume it has to go much deeper than just that. If you were to track my views on this, Rob, you'd see quite a change. In 2011, I wrote a, a paper and did some research where I suggested that uh, it would be impossible to ban cell phones and it would be deprive kids of learning. So I was kind of in this, the, that cohort which thought, let's give cell phones a chance. By 2016, I wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail that covered, it was a two-pager that said we need to ban cell phones, we need to do it now because it's taking over schools. I, I now view, and you, my most recent one says it's too late, uh, we cannot do that. So I'm recommending three essential approaches. One. We need to seriously examine our teaching methodologies and look at teaching-centered classrooms. That would be a fundamental change. Secondly, I think that we need to be looking at ways of controlling uh, and managing the use of technology in the classroom, and we need to have some, and we need to focus on something which is called developing habits of attention in this uh, generation of kids. In other words, we need to. Uh, go back and take a hard look at what we're doing in the classrooms. So where does that start? I mean, does that start with how we're training teachers? Does that start with provincial education departments, school boards? Like, who needs to take the lead on this? We need leadership. 
um, and we need leadership from departments of education, ministries of education, to see the problem for what it is. We also need um, principals and uh, school superintendents to confront the, the problem. One thing that I learned is I've written three or four pieces on this. I started, I wrote one in The Hub in uh, October, and I got the most feedback I've had on any article I've ever written. And then when parent-teacher meetings occurred in the fall, there was an overwhelming reaction that uh, teachers were openly discussing the challenges they face now in, in um, recovering, reclaiming kids and their minds after the pandemic. This is a huge issue. And then um, we've got now all kinds of people in the public domain recognizing it. Um, school systems are slow to react, and um, I think this is a huge issue that needs to be confronted in the next year or so. Are you seeing any signs of hope? I mean, you mentioned some of the researchers that are calling attention to this. Are we seeing any jurisdictions that are starting to act on this? Is there anyone that we can point to and say, let's let's follow their lead? Oh, yes. The United Kingdom is way ahead of us. Oh, yeah? um, Doug Lemoff has been hired to uh, involve in the training of all new teachers with his, um, his um, champions, um, uh, Teach Like a Champion program, which has as a cornerstone teaching-centered classrooms and developing habits of attention. And we need to go and take a look at Teach, Teach Like a Champion and other programs which have, ta- have taken this on. Some U.S. jurisdictions have begun to look at it. But I'd have to say that our faculties of education are uh, not in the mix. In fact, uh, you probably noticed that I referenced um, a CBC News national story where they actually focused on a faculty of education parent, well-meaning, and her child, and she saw TikTok as harmless as a way of exposing kids to uh, getting, hooking them and discussing serious issues. And I simply was dumbfounded by that. So I think there's a lot of learning that needs to take place inside our educational authorities and certainly in our faculties of education. Uh, much more at uh, schoolhouseconsulting.ca. Uh, your piece uh, from the other day, it's up at the National Post, uh, National Post website, nationalpost.com. And uh, we mentioned your book from a couple of years ago, The State of the System, A Reality Check on Canada Schools. Dr. Bennett, really appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation to be on your show. Likewise. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Dr. Paul Bennett, as mentioned, director of the Schoolhouse Institute, author of the book, The State of the System, A Reality Check on Canada Schools. That's something we need to confront, uh, and the sooner the better. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. We remain in the throes of an overdose crisis, an addiction crisis, a homelessness crisis, and clearly some overlap uh, between uh, all of those those challenges. Now, in confronting this, I think we need to be open to the evidence. We need to be open to solutions uh, that, that maybe might conflict with some of our preconceived notions. But we do need to be open to different ideas. Are governments right now willing to entertain different ideas? Are governments willing to hear from a variety of, of different viewpoints, different experts? Well, our next guest seems to have, uh, at least in his experience, learned that maybe the answer to that is no, at least as pertains certainly to the situation in B.C., where much of this crisis uh, does seem not necessarily concentrated, but maybe, maybe worse there than in some other parts of the country. And it does raise questions about how we go about finding solutions to all of these problems and what direction the evidence uh, indeed points us. Our next guest had created a, a database, a pretty important and elaborate database, 
uh, to to give an indication of you know what what's happening with these these issues, how best to address them. It's the Interministry Evaluation Database. It was known as IMED. Well, the BC government demanded that he delete that database and then blocked important sources of information uh, that could help sustain that database. So joining us to talk about this experience and, again, what it tells us about that bigger picture of an openness to look at different ideas and really, truly try to find solutions to these big, big problems. Uh, Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon uh, Professor Julian Summers, a distinguished professor at Simon Fraser University with a focus on clinical psychology, substance uh, substance use, mental health, homelessness. Professor Summers, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you also. Thanks. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the fact that you're, you're, you know, discussing all of this publicly, obviously you're seeing and hearing a lot that is concerning you about, uh, you know, how governments are handling these important issues. Why is it important, do you think, then to, to call attention to all of this right now? Well, um, yeah, it's a, I mean, it, it's, it's not a happy chapter uh, in, 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 in my career, I, I, I'd have to say, and it's, uh, it's, it comes out of a, a, a state of, uh, crisis, um, really. I don't. I don't mean the big crisis that you're referring to, but um, but but a more a more sort of local one, which involves um, uh, an accumulated body of evidence related to um, how people who um, are in that syndrome you talked about. So the inter the interministry uh, um, work was uh um focused on the the that, that subpopulation that you described at the, at the top the people who are experiencing all of addiction and mental illness and homelessness and uh trouble finding and maintaining work and recurrent involvement with police courts and corrections so all those things so they're seen across multiple publicly funded sectors and as we know uh people who are experiencing those multiple points of contact are becoming uh, have, have increased as a proportion of the population, and our our responses are not keeping pace. So, the positive news is that there's evidence that can guide us to help people in our communities. In fact, that's really all the evidence related to how to help involves things that can be done at a community level to help people in fundamental areas of their lives. I mean housing, employment, and broadly, social reintegration. At the moment, however, I would say both in BC and also federally, the policy environment rejects acknowledging that local factors, community-based factors, are the ones that put people at risk, and also that open the doors to change, positive change. And instead, these two uh, branches of of Canadian government have elected to focus on something that is really widely discredited, and that is something external to us. It's no longer being referred to as the war on drugs, that it's it's narcos and traffickers and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's another phantom, the toxic drug supply. But the point that doesn't change is that the focus remains external to our communities and the only play according to their logic is to try to replace the toxic drug supply with a pharmaceutical supply um, and realize some improvements that way no place on planet earth has successfully 
has even attempted this, but certainly no place has shown that doing that results in any meaningful change. Meanwhile, the evidence that, that is available that shows that change is, is well within our grasp is being rejected. And when people like me persist in raising it for consideration, rather than relenting, Unfortunately, the government, and it surprised me, the government took the step of saying, okay, we, if you're not gonna, um, if you're not gonna go away, uh, quietly, we'll simply silence you. And that's really what's happened. And it's been not only the destruct, the order to destroy data, but other tactics to discredit and malign reputations. And it's, 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 it's become quite ugly, which is why, why I characterize it as a kind of a low point. But I think that we're uh, going to have to face a little bit, things will get a little darker before they get brighter. And I think uh, the fact that you know, shows like yours are showing a real interest in, in, in expanding discussion, this was not happening a year ago. And it's happening in many places and in many communities. I think I think we're beginning to show signs of turning a corner. So, you know, the, the response from the British Columbia government, I mean, if they disagree with your recommendations to at least hear you out, you presented this. I mean, you, you've got data backing up your conclusions here. I mean, were, were you surprised at how all of this was was taken and, and how they reacted to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I mean, in hindsight, I was super naive. We presented um, one, one week on a Friday, I was asked to make a presentation to deputy ministers, and many folks are probably aware that deputy ministers in our system are the, the most senior public servants in government. And, um, and I was presenting uh, uh, a proposal that, that SFU... Um, and uh, and 14 not-for-profit societies put together based on evidence conducted in Canada and uh, and also around the world to implement uh, um, housing that just isn't available for people right now. It's this. It's not the model that we use. And uh, the letter we received ordering us to destroy the database arrived one week later. It took me months to accept the fact that what I said on the Friday the week before contributed to the letter we got one week later. I, it just, it did, I just did not want to believe that. But what we now know, and it's pretty clear, is that at the same time I was making my remarks, the government had already committed to increasing quite massively by over $100 million the uh, budgets of existing services. And we know this because audits have come to light criticizing the government for um, dispensing those funds without adequate procurement documentation, without adequate statements of what the funds are, are meant to achieve and how those outcomes would be measured. And, at the, and, and this was happening at the same time that I was presenting a fully budgeted, detailed proposal with outcomes stated based on results from randomized controlled trials. Mm -hmm. So the contrast couldn't be more stark. And what it tells us in hindsight is that the government was fully committed to a course of action that involved growing the status quo and was uh, had no interest whatsoever in considering a change to introduce uh, a different approach that um, reflected what's been shown to be useful uh, in in many other places, including Vancouver, when we when we've when we've run ran large randomized controlled trials. 
Well, let's expand on those. And you mentioned some of them, like, you know, housing, employment, social reintegration. How do we how do we implement this in, in a policy? Frame? Well, so Portugal is a fabulous example, in my opinion, uh, partly because of the language they use. They said this is an all hands on deck situation and everyone needs to be a part of the solution. If you don't see a way to connect what you're doing with helping us collectively, then there's a missed opportunity. And so tangibly, what does that mean? Well, it, we in, in successful interventions, we partner with private sector landlords because 84% of people who are homeless with mental illnesses and addictions have a strong preference for independent housing. Mm-hmm. So we talk, to, we talk to landlords in the private sector and we secure units dispersed in their portfolios. We also talk to employers in the private sector because a similar proportion, about 80%, list resuming paid work as one of their top priorities. About 25% of the folks that we've worked with have kids under under age 18 that they're not living with, and predictably reconnecting with their kids is another top priority. But the, the point I was emphasizing about the private sector is critical. Small employers, landlords throughout our provinces need to understand their opportunity to contribute, and and governments do. Here in in BC, and unfortunately in a number of of regions, we are uh, focused on uh, that the solution somehow has to come through the private sector. It's got to be in the case of BC, it's got to be through BC housing, Mm -hmm. and BC housing is going to, you know, take responsibility for it. But, you know, how many of us regard the presence of more public services in our lives as 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 being related to increased quality of life? It's always the other direction, getting government out of our lives. And I, that doesn't mean pushing government away. It means drawing on government supports in ways that allow us to have as much freedom and as much opportunity in our lives as possible. So um, there, there are opportunities at the community level. It involves employers. It involves landlords. And... Uh, um, and stepping forward and simply asserting that, hey, you know, nobody's asked us, but our business improvement association, which includes landlords and employers, wants to play a role. We've heard that we can play a meaningful role. We're here ready to go. You know, that that's a meaningful step, setting the table, inviting governments in. Currently, not many, I mean, Alberta is the exception in Canada these days, but not many are showing a a real sort of a clear understanding of of how solutions can really take root. By the way, these are not only solutions, but these are also steps that help prevent homelessness from occurring in the first place. In, In our work with folks in the downtown east side of Vancouver, 500 people who gave us consent to look at their administrative records in that interministry database that you referred to and go back 10 years, 85% of them were not living in metro. Yeah. 10 years before. They migrate from regions all around the province looking for um, opportunities and for supports that they don't find, because when we meet them, they're all homeless. And we need to distribute these opportunities around our provinces so that people can get help earlier on in their journey. They don't need to go through these 10-year 10, 10 uh, fruitless migration processes where their 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 health is only deteriorating and they're not getting any closer to finding assistance. 
Really fascinating stuff. Dr. Summers, we'll leave it there. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Dr. Julian Summers, clinical psychologist and distinguished professor at Simon Fraser University. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.